You are tuned to KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's 6 p.m. Thursday, September 8th. I'm Joyce Miller, and this is the KVMR Evening News. Students have gotten back to in-person classes, but the stretch of extreme weather has again disrupted learning all over the state. The California Report talks to teachers without AC. Plus, it examines new data that sheds light on incarceration rates in rural counties. After news on the Mosquito Fire and the weather forecast, KVMR's Charles Athill reflects on the death of Queen Elizabeth II after 70 years on the throne. We end with an essay by Molly Fisk. This is the California Report. I'm Adi Bolaños in San Francisco. Another hot day across California as the state continues to endure a blistering heat wave. Temperatures are not expected to reach the record highs parts of Northern California saw on Tuesday, but many inland spots are expecting temperatures well above 100 degrees. The California Independent System operator has already called for another day of conservation, asking Californians to use less electricity between 3 and 10 p.m. today. And as the heat wave drags on, broken cooling systems are disrupting the school day in many parts of California. That's forced many school districts to bring in fans and portable AC units to lower classroom temperatures. KQED reporter Daisy Wynn visited a Bay Area school that's cutting the day short this week because it has no air conditioning. It was already 90 degrees in Novato when students were let out of Lou Sutton Elementary at half past noon Wednesday. Fifth grader Gianna Corsetti says fans are circulating the air in her classroom, but they don't do much to help her focus. It gets really stuffy in there, and it gets gross, and it's just, like, really hot. Novato Unified School District officials said they had set aside money to install AC in three schools over the summer. But supply chain issues caused delays, and inflation pushed the project a few million dollars over budget. Gianna's dad, Robert, thinks officials didn't prioritize fixing a school they had considered closing last year. Lou Sutton serves students from mostly Latino and working-class families. They didn't kind of focus on the foundation when they should have. So we're dealing with the aftermath of that now, and it's only getting hotter, right? So it's kind of hard to expect kids on, say, the other side of town, they get AC, they get more days and more hours in class, and, you know, the schools that don't have it, those kids have less hours in class as a result of a decision of a few impacts, you know, thousands of people. Jorge Castillo said picking up his two kids around lunchtime throws off the rest of his workday. He's upset his children can't enjoy in-person learning after being derailed by the pandemic. Inequities at play here, and, uh, and now it's, it's boiling up to the point where the kids can't even go to class. District officials say AC installation has to wait until next summer because it's too disruptive to do the work when school's in session. For the California Report, I'm Daisy Nguyen in Novato. A new report out from the Prison Policy Initiative reveals unexpected data about incarceration rates among rural Californians. CalMatters' Nigel Duara has been looking into this new research and talking to folks on the ground to try to get more context. He joins us now. Welcome, Nigel. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Of course. Tell me, this new report drew from data that California hadn't had access to before. Can you give us a little bit of background on that? So for the first time in its 2020 census, the state counted prison inmates in their home districts instead of the cities and counties where they're incarcerated in. So that's basically how most of the rest of the country does it. 
That is how California did it until this census. So what happened is they're doing redistricting maps, and these are the first ones that are going to count people where they lived before they were incarcerated, if they can find where that is. Um, you can imagine that gives their home districts a little bit more political power. And uh, like I said, there's nine other states that are taking steps to do this to end what they call prison gerrymandering. Talk to us about some of the figures that jumped out at you most in rural California. And I'm just immediately thinking, especially, you know, Shasta and Kern counties. So when you look at the overall data, of course, the most people are coming from the biggest counties like Los Angeles County, San Diego County. But per capita, per 100,000 people, the highest rates of incarcerated people actually come from small rural counties. So the data even lets you see incarceration rates by census tract, and that can sometimes be as small as like a neighborhood. So, for instance, in Shasta County, way up in rural northern California, it's the top of the list for incarcerated people per 100,000. There's one census tract in Redding where one in every hundred people is in prison. Wow. Yeah, and there's one neighborhood in Bakersfield that had one of the highest incarceration rates in the whole state. It's in Kern County, which also has the highest homicide rate in the state, and that's been true for six years running. Wow. And what are experts saying is driving this disproportionate incarceration rates in these rural areas? Well, I mean, we know that nailing down one or a couple of factors in terms of like who's doing crime and why it can be tough. But when you talk to people on the ground, it's a lot of the same issues that we know is making life hard for people in Los Angeles or in the Bay Area. When you ask people in Shasta County, they said that there's three main drivers of crime. And it's not too different from the stuff that I hear in Los Angeles. High housing costs, untreated mental illness, and NIMBYs, people saying, don't build new housing in my backyard. Then on top of that, in Shasta County, the fires from 2018 displaced a lot of people. So folks started moving up into Shasta, into more rural reaches, that sent all the housing costs higher. Folks who were already on the economic fringe are getting pushed all the way to its edge. Interesting. I wonder if we'll see more of that as fires continue to ravage the state. Well, certainly as long as you have people that are leaving bigger cities and going into the more rural areas. Interesting. Did you um, find any other reasons besides the ones that you listed uh, for Bakersfield? For Bakersfield, I mean, it's a lot of gangs. Uh, it's a lot of MS-13. Um, and it's a lot of conflict. I went on a, on a long tour with somebody who, who works with gangs uh, in Bakersfield. He could just point from block to block. Well, this is where this territory ends and this is where it starts. And really from every block to block, you can see these are all friction points happening throughout Bakersfield. Um, so the reasons definitely differ in different rural counties, but the incarceration rates really tell you that these are places where people are missing. You know, one of out of every hundred people in a neighborhood in Reading is not there. All right, well, thank you again, Nigel. I appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Thanks so much for having me. That was Cal Matters' Nigel Dwara. Support for the California Report comes from the California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org/health-equity. Hint. Fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors, like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories, in stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute. Coming this fall, the launch of research vessel Falcor 2, advancing the frontiers of ocean science and exploration on the web at schmidtocean.org. And that's the California Report for Thursday, September 8th. 
We're a production of KQED Public Radio. And remember, you can get all your daily statewide news on the California Report podcast. Subscribe and download wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Madi Bolaños. Thanks for listening and have a great day. In regional news, the Mosquito Fire near Forest Hill expanded overnight and today to 8,625 acres, according to CAL FIRE and the U.S. Forest Service. More than 1,700 firefighting personnel were working in 100-degree-plus temperatures and steep terrain with very low humidity and winds gusting to 25 miles per hour. More than 1,000 structures are threatened. Ubinet.com reported this afternoon that air attack had reported the fire had jumped the American River on the El Dorado County side. Obviously, the situation is subject to rapid change. According to a story in today's Sacramento Bee, the Mosquito Fire also is threatening critical infrastructure. CAL FIRE said facilities at risk included the Sugar Pine Dam, Placer County Water Agency's pump station and dam, large power lines, the Ralston Hydroelectric Powerhouse, and cell phone towers. The blaze displayed extreme behavior all day Wednesday and more than quadrupled in size, fire authorities said. It ignited Tuesday evening near the Oxbow Reservoir at Tahoe National Forest, quickly spreading northwest toward Forest Hill. With about 1,500 people, Forest Hill was ordered by the Placer County Sheriff's Office to evacuate at midday Wednesday, along with immediately surrounding communities in Placer County. Parts of Volcanoville in El Dorado County were also placed under mandatory evacuation orders. CAL FIRE put out a news release this morning saying some structures in Michigan Bluff have been destroyed and damaged. Inspectors have started to assess the structural damage, and CAL FIRE said details will be made available to the affected parties. In a filing to state regulators this morning, Pacific Gas and Electric Company said electrical activity occurred close in time to the report time of the fire on one of its transmission poles near Oxbow Reservoir. PG&E said the Forest Service has placed caution tape around the base of a transmission pole. PG&E said it had observed no damage or abnormal conditions to the pole or our facilities near Oxbow Reservoir. The utility company, which has been ruled criminally responsible for sparking the campfire in Paradise and whose equipment was determined to be the cause of last year's Dixie Fire, said it submitted today's filing out of an abundance of caution. The cause of the mosquito fire remains under investigation. Due to smoke from the fire, air pollution was recorded at hazardous levels above 200 as of 9 a.m. today in parts of Placer, El Dorado, and Sacramento counties, including Folsom, El Dorado Hills, Granite Bay, Orange Vale, and Cameron Park. Pollution reached very unhealthy levels near Auburn, Newcastle, and Penryn, and unhealthy levels near Roseville, Carmichael, Citrus Heights, and Rancho Cordova. The Forest Service on Wednesday evening announced that a large portion of Tahoe National Forest, including the French Meadows Reservoir and the Western States Trail, will be closed to the public through at least the end of 2022. Turning to the regional forecast from the National Weather Service and air quality data from purpleair.com, dangerous heat and elevated fire weather conditions will continue through Friday, cooling a bit over the weekend. The California Independent System Operator this afternoon extended today's flex alert an extra hour to 10 p.m. instead of 9 p.m. Cooling centers will remain open at the Grass Valley and Penn Valley libraries from 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. through Friday. Tonight in Nevada City and Grass Valley will be clear with a low around 71. 
The air quality index is in the high 20s at the moment, which is satisfactory. But as with all air quality measurements in this changing environment, it could shift quickly. Friday, expect widespread haze between 10 a.m. and noon. Otherwise, Friday will be sunny and hot with a high near 102 and a nighttime low around 70. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe tonight, clear with a low around 51. West wind 5 to 10 miles per hour becoming light and variable in the evening. The air quality index in Truckee is averaging in the 50s and considerably higher, around 150 in communities close to Lake Tahoe. Those levels can cause health effects in sensitive groups with 24 hours of exposure. Friday, we'll see areas of smoke before 11 a.m. and after 2 p.m. with widespread haze between 11 a.m. and 2 p.m. Otherwise, mostly sunny with a high near 87. Friday night, areas of smoke before midnight, then partly cloudy with a low around 53. In Sacramento and Woodland tonight, clear with a low around 71. The air quality index is averaging from the 40s into the 60s. Any reading over 50 is considered acceptable, but possibly risky for sensitive people. Friday will be sunny and hot, with a high near 110 and a low of 67. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. KVMR broadcaster Charles Athill is an American now, but he also holds fast to his British citizenship. One of the main reasons is his admiration for Queen Elizabeth II. Athill reflects on his indelible memories of her 70-year reign. Her Majesty the Queen was a feature of almost my entire life. I remember when her father, King George VI, died and the excitement of the wonderful moment when this beautiful young woman became queen. Actually, I don't suppose I thought of her as being beautiful at my age. That came later. Her coronation in June 1953 was, I think, the first time I ever saw television. And what an event, such pageantry, which the British are very good at. And my post-World War II generation became known as the New Elizabethans. Of course, we didn't know nearly as much about her and the royal family and their goings-on as unfortunately we do now. For me, she was appropriately shrouded in mystery, uh, appearing on great um, ceremonial occasions like the Trooping of the Colour, the State Opening of Parliament, royal weddings, perhaps the opening of some prestigious national monument. And with the mystery was the sense that she represented security and permanence above the frantic fray of political life, representing national unity, even if these days that unity is a bit frayed. And for all the criticisms of the monarchy, the Queen seemed infinitely preferable to an elected president, even a non-executive one. I did see her once as she was driving, presumably in a Rolls-Royce, through my local village, where hundreds of us stood eager and excited to cheer and wave. She was gracious enough to wave back, though I'm not sure she actually saw me. As a commoner, as we ordinary citizens are called, it gave me a frisson of delight to visit some of the magnificent homes, well, palaces. I didn't get inside Buckingham Palace, or Buck House, as it's familiarly known, though my parents did get invited to a royal garden party. 
but I did visit the Queen's Art Gallery there and wandered through parts of Windsor Castle and stood in awe outside the gates of the Palace of Holyrood House, her official residence in Edinburgh, hoping for a glimpse of the Queen in a splendid hat, of course, accompanied by a couple of corgis, the Queen's beasties, as we call them. Alas, she was not in residence. And I always rather liked the idea that to be made a companion of honour, one of the highest honours of Britain, was the personal gift of Her Majesty, even though I knew it was the bureaucrats of the civil service who compiled the list, which, by the way, includes Sir Paul McCartney and Sir Elton John, as well as opera singers and classical composers and sports people. What taste she seemed to have. When I became an American citizen, I was able to keep my British citizenship and I've sometimes wondered if I would have become an American if I'd had to give up my British citizenship. And the answer is no. And the presence of the Queen on her throne has something to do with that. Yes, it's a sad moment, but how astonishing to think of a 70-year reign, 70 years of change and turmoil, and 15 prime ministers, which just shows the ephemeral nature of politics compared to the enduring phenomenon of the monarchy. Yes, the Queen is dead. Long live the King. That would be King Charles III. And I hope I will come to admire him as much as I admired and enjoyed Her Majesty the Queen. And now, Molly Fisk. Molly Fisk, Observations from a Working Poet. Watching a TV show last night made me want to get married. Something about the ending being tragic and exquisitely well done. Not the stupid, hollow, melodramatic finales we usually see, but simple and devastating. I woke this morning from a dream in which I was holding someone's hand. When I say get married, that's not what I actually mean. It's my generation's code for be in a long-term committed partnership with someone I love, which is too long to say. I have many thoughts about literal marriage, and most are uncomplimentary. I don't need to go into them here. But what it might mean to hold someone's hand, the knuckles and pads of the fingers familiar, comforting, the expanse of palm, to feel that casual and meaningful human connection again seemed precious to me, who hasn't thought about holding hands in years. Life is incredibly complicated. I should probably just end here, right? You know what I mean. Everything has background, context, and history. People don't know themselves or know all too well. We build our lives alone and together. We change, fail and succeed, make do, make hay while the sun shines, hurt and care for each other. All the things, the great big human mess. I'm not telling you which TV show, I don't want to spoil it. But in a hospital hallway, exhausted, one character asks another to marry him. 
They're sitting in those awful molded plastic bucket chairs that are welded together in groups of four, like industrial church pews, so they're side by side, not able to turn toward each other. It's unexpected in the plot and far from any idealized proposal scenario. Neither of them is beautiful or young. It's a minor scene between a main character and an ancillary one and doesn't last long. She asks if he's serious, and he says, completely. She leans back in her chair and, after a pause, turns her head toward him and says something like, yeah, or okay. I loved how ordinary it was, stripped of romance but loaded with feeling, coming from someone who maybe had thought about proposing but wasn't ready or wasn't sure or hadn't had time to plan it yet. It was so symbolic, blurted out like that, probably why it moved me so much. Maybe we're all in a hospital hallway right now, not waiting out a surgery on someone we love, but caught in that same vivid mix of uncertainty, dread, realistic prognosis, and hope against hope. The climate, the fires, the virus, the future. And I'm suddenly thinking, I don't want to do this alone, even though I've been alone for ages, even though I already briefly sort of had a love of my life, and are we allowed more than one? Lately, I hear people saying, and I've even said it myself, we don't get what we want or what we deserve. We get what we get. Today, this seems both true and oversimplified. What if we don't see what we have? What are we not recognizing that's right beside us? And what if we get what we ask for? What then? Award-winning poet Molly Fisk writes, coaches, and teaches writing in California's Sierra Nevada foothills. You can reach her at mollyfisk.com. This program is produced at the studios of KVMR-FM, Nevada City, California. Funding is provided by Harmony Books of Downtown Nevada City and KVMR with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. That's our newscast. KVMR Community Radio gets support from Four Paws Animal Clinic. Dr. Susan Murphy and Sue Lester and staff are proud to support KVMR, providing medical, dental, alternative, and surgical services for cherished companions on Searles Avenue in Nevada City. FourPawsAC.com. And Hanson Brothers Enterprises since 1953 providing aggregates, construction services, equipment rentals, ready-mix concrete, masonry, and landscape products for public works, commercial, and residential projects. Located in Grass Valley and Colfax. GoHBE.com This is Joyce Miller signing off. Keep calm and carry on, and join us Friday at 6 for another edition of the KVMR Evening News. Thank you.